Now, before you are seated, we have an Easter tradition here that goes all the way back 2,000 years. I say the words, He is risen, and you respond, He is risen indeed. You ready? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Now you may be seated. Several years ago, Bishop Matt Thomas was telling us a story of a young man who had just been saved, brand new Christian, had never been to a worship service of any kind his whole life. His very first Sunday in a church was on Easter Sunday morning. And at some point in the service, uh, Matt did exactly what I just did. He shouted out, he is risen. And not having a clue what everybody else in the room was about to do, this young man immediately responded, you got that right. (laughs) I kind of like that, don't you? I mean, I I love that raw, fresh faith of a new believer. Let's do it raw, can we? He is risen. All right, I like that. That's good. That's good. On a more serious note, N.T. Wright, a great theologian, talks about The time early in uh, the history of Russia when they first were being taken over by the Communist Party. And he said one of the Communist Party leaders came to speak to a, a huge gathering of people. And he was essentially preaching to them the gospel of communism. And toward the end of his message, he, uh, he said these words, Therefore, there is no God. Jesus Christ never existed. There is no such thing as a Holy Spirit. The church is an oppressive institution, and at any rate, it's out of date. The future belongs to the state, and the state belongs to the party. With those words, he moved to take his seat. But before he could be seated, a priest who was sitting very near the front stood up and he said, May I have two words, two words. The speaker disdainfully agreed to let him speak. It's two words in Russian. It's three in Spanish. The old priest turned and he looked at all the people who were gathered there. And suddenly he just shouted, He is risen! And with one great thundering voice, the entire gathering responded, he is risen indeed. There is no government, there is no political party, there is no army, there is no force on the face of the earth that can match the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to ask you two critical questions today, and the first one is this. Do you truly believe what we just proclaim? Do you truly believe what we just proclaimed? Now, I know it's Easter and this is what we as Christians do, but do you believe it? Because you see, the Apostle Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He then goes on to to say this, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In essence, what Paul is saying there is that if Jesus Christ was not literally raised from the dead, then the entire message of the Christian faith is 
a fraud. It's a fraud. Can I tell you why I believe the resurrection is a fact? I really can do it with just one word. Now, I know, I've, I know all the evidences of the apologist. I've even preached on it. But if you really want to know why I, Keith Cowart, believe in the reality of the resurrection, I could sum it up in the word transformation. Transformation. Namely, the transformation of the followers of Jesus in the weeks and months following his death. You may remember Peter in particular. In the courtyard during Jesus' trial, at this point Jesus was still alive. Three different people came to Peter and they said to him, Hey, you're one of his followers. You were one of those that followed him around. You belonged to him. Three times Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, much less that he had been a follower. The third time with angry curses. Now think about this. If Peter refused to be identified with Jesus when Jesus was still alive, then why in the world would he choose to be identified with him after he was dead and gone? And yet that's exactly what happens just over a month after Jesus died. Peter is standing in Jerusalem in the middle of the city where thousands of people are gathered. And he begins to preach and he preaches with such confidence and boldness that 3,000 people are saved on the spot. And it didn't stop there. Peter continued to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with no thought whatsoever to his own welfare. He would end up in prison. He would end up ultimately dying a martyr's death. But Peter would never again in his life fail to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. I am convinced that the only thing that could have made that kind of difference in Peter was the resurrection. Only the resurrection could bring that kind of transformation. Now, now you may say, but lots of men, lots of movements have been started by the deaths of men. And that's true. There's no question about it. There, there are a lot of movements down through history that were, were launched because of the, the death of a martyr. But let me just say that when it comes to Jesus, these followers of Jesus believed that he was the Jewish Messiah. And for hundreds and even thousands of years, they had been looking for a Messiah who would come. And when that Messiah came, they believed, their, their belief was a little bit off, but they believed that that Messiah would set up an earthly kingdom over which he would reign. That's why when Jesus died, the disciples went into hiding. They were shattered. They were broken. They were devastated. Everything that they had given up their whole lives for was now gone because Jesus was in the grave. You can't have that kind of movement without a Messiah. And for those two days, the Messiah was dead. And over the course of those two days, you don't hear a peep out of the disciples. Not a word. They're hiding. They are assuming that what happened to Jesus might well happen to them. They're doing everything in their power to stay out of public view. But one month later, they are a completely transformed group. 
How, what, what makes the difference? What other than resurrection that they saw exactly what they claimed to see over and over again in the years to come, that they had seen the risen Lord, that he was back, he was alive. Peter tells us as much in Acts 2 in that very same message I spoke of earlier when he says this, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. A few verses later, Paul, uh, Peter says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. That's what transformed the life of Peter. And let me tell you that it didn't stop there because those 3,000 people that got saved, they all began to come together. They began to meet together. They formed what was the first church. And this is a description of that first church in, the, in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and and held everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. You telling me that's not transformation? People selling their property? in order to give to those who don't have need? People loving one another, people that used to be enemies, now suddenly in fellowship together, that's transformation. And transformation is why I believe Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. But there's a second critical question this morning, and it's this. If I do believe that Jesus was raised, what difference does it make today? I mean, we're talking about history here. We're talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. What is the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection for me today? And I want to testify to you today as one whose life has been transformed, is being transformed by the power of God. I want to tell you that it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has the power to transform your past, to transform your future and even your present. First of all, it has the power to set you free from your past guilt. To set you free from your past guilt. There was a very famous psychiatrist, wasn't a Christian, but very, very famous psychiatrist who once said that if he could just convince people they were forgiven... 70% of his patients would be okay. He said, 70% of the people that I deal with are dealing with the fundamental issue of forgiveness. Uh, I mean, I think it's fascinating that after all these years, after all of our advances as people, that sin is still man's most basic problem. Deep, deep down, we all know we're broken. And we know that everyone around us is broken. We can see the evidence everywhere. We have hurt others. 
We have been hurt by others. No matter how much the world wants to eliminate the very idea of sin, there is something deep within us that knows we need to be forgiven. That knows that we need to be made right with God. And it's the resurrection that guarantees the forgiveness of our sins. You may think, but I thought it was a cross. I thought it was on the cross that Jesus paid for our sin. And that's absolutely right. It is on the cross that Jesus paid for our sins. But let me say again what Paul was getting at earlier. Paul says that if the man who was hanging on that tree was just a man, then it can do nothing for your sin. Because he was simply dying for his own sin. But if he was the sinless son of God, then the man who is hanging on that tree that paid the price for your sins is the son of God. And if he is the son of God, then he has the power to forgive you of your sin and to eliminate your guilt from the past. I think it's fascinating that on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, when he initially came up out of the grave, that there were women who had come to take care of his body for burial. And when they arrived, Jesus was gone, but there was an angel there. An angel had been left there to tell those who came what was happening. And the angel said to the women who were there, he is not here. You won't find him. He is gone. And then the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, why did the angel single out Peter? Well, the short answer to that is he was doing what Jesus told him to do. I have no doubt that Jesus gave the instructions to the angel, when they come, tell them to go tell the disciples and Peter. But why would Jesus single out Peter? Some people have said that uh, it's, it's the world's greatest, I told you so. That Jesus was saying to Peter, I told you the night before that you were going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what you did. But I don't think that's what was going on at all. You, you see, I think that even in this, the most significant moment in all of history, that Jesus was thinking of Peter's guilt. Jesus knew that Peter would be racked with guilt over what he had done. In fact, he knew that his resurrection would in some ways even heighten the guilt. I mean, of course Peter would be excited. He would be thrilled that Jesus was alive. But now he would know for sure that the man he betrayed was the very Son of God. And Jesus knew that the guilt of that would be overwhelming. And Jesus was saying, tell Peter that the resurrection is for him. Don't let anyone tell Peter that I, didn't, I was not raised for him. Let him know that this power that raised me from the dead is going to raise him up out of his failure and give him new life that will set him free from the guilt of his past. Amen? Amen. And I want you to know, beloved, that he can do the same for you today. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He raised you up with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of these charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. 
because Jesus was raised from the dead, you can be set free from the pain and the guilt of your past. But it also means that you are free from the fear of the future. By future, I'm not, I'm not referring so much to the future in general, but to that very specific event that awaits us all. I'm talking about death. Death. Uh, Laurie Beth Jones tells a story of a man named Joe. Um, who was a friend of hers, who had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with his wife. Uh, She had been diagnosed with a terminal cancer some months before. He said it was incredible to watch this young couple um, in in the last months of her life. He said they lived with such clarity. They loved so passionately because they knew their time was short. But it soon became clear that her, her days were few. And he said that while she was there in the hospital, he finally worked up the courage to ask her a question that had been haunting him for weeks. He said, Christine, what is it like? What's it like to live every day knowing that you're dying? Christine looked at at him and said, Joe, what's it like to live every day pretending that you're not? The truth of the matter is, we are all dying. There's not a 100% guarantee that every one of us in this room at some point will face death. This is what the great philosopher Woody Allen said about death. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against death. Death is absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. That's the world's view of death. And don't get me wrong. Even for us as Christians, death is an enemy. That's, that's what the Bible calls it. It's an enemy. The death, death is painful. Death brings uh, great pain into our lives. And, and, and it is an enemy because death is an intrusion against everything that God is for. God is life, and it's his desire to bring life, and death comes against life itself. It separates us, even temporarily, from those we love. But for Christians, it is an enemy that has been defeated. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We have the victory over death. Now, I'll tell you that um, I've read this passage hundreds of times, but it wasn't until a a few months ago or years ago that that I really kind of got the sense of what Paul was actually trying to say. In that little phrase, the sting of death. Calvin Miller talks about the fact that a bee can only sting once. A bee has this venomous weapon, and when he, when he uh, injects that, that uh, stinger into its victim, it brings great pain. But when that bee moves away from its victim, the stinger's left, and a bee only has one stinger. It says that bee can fly around you, it can torment you, it can, it can even frighten you, but then the truth of the matter is it has no power whatsoever to ever hurt you again. He said that's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said the sting of death is sin. 
He's saying here that death came and sunk its venomous weapon into the flesh of Jesus Christ. But because Jesus took the sting of death, you and I no longer have to live in fear of it. It may torment us. It, it may come and, and it's maybe like an insect flying around nuisance, a nuisance to you. But beloved, I want to tell you today that it is an enemy that has been defeated. Because of the resurrection, we can be set free from the fear of the future. But it also means that we can we are free to live life to the fullest in the present. If you've been with us over the last three months, you know that we've been working through a series that's all about how Christ came to make us whole. Uh, we began by talking about the fact that salvation is so much more than just getting a ticket to go to heaven when we die. That the Greek word that we translate salvation literally means to be made whole. To be made whole. What that does mean is that salvation is not just about forgiving us of our past sins. It's about giving us the power to live as new people today. It's not just about giving us a ticket to heaven after we die. It's about giving us the power to live fully right now. That's what the resurrection brings us. The truth of the matter is that every one of us here is broken. We're all broken. We've been broken by our own decisions, our own choices. We've been hurt and broken by the sins and choices of others against us. We've been broken by the fact that we live in a sinful world, a broken world, and we suffer its effects. And on top of all that, we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. And, and, and because of that, many of us still have unhealed wounds. Many of us have unresolved failures from the past. And those unresolved failures can bring so much more than just guilt. They can bring chains that bind us and imprison us. Chains that rob us of life that is truly life. Now those chains may be internal. Maybe things like uh, regret, bitterness, resentment, shame, guilt. Or those chains may be wide open where everybody can see it. Painful habits or addictions. Paralyzing fear and worry. Insecurities that cause us to push people away. Isolate ourselves. Or insecurities that cause us to chase after people, pursuing them, clinging to them in hopes that somehow they will accept us and then we will find value in life. We could go on and on and talk about all the different ways that the brokenness we've experienced still haunts us in the present. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ came to transform that. He came to transform that. He didn't just save you so that when you die, you get to go to heaven. He came to give you life and that abundantly right now. Amen? But I want you to know, you cannot do this alone. You can't do it in your own strength. How many of you remember playing with an Etch-A-Sketch when you were a kid? You remember that? Uh, I used to love these etch sketches because, you know, you could, you could tr start trying to draw something, and if you messed up, what do you do? 
You just shake it a couple of times and you get a fresh, clean slate, right? I heard someone one time compare salvation to an Etch-A-Sketch. And he said, that's what salvation is. You know, we, we mess up and God just takes it and shakes us and gives us a whole new slate. But I got to tell you, even though that's exciting, if that's all Christianity is, it, it's not that powerful to me. Because you know what? I'm the same guy that messed it up before. I'm going to keep messing it up again and again and again. I mean, I, my problem is I can't draw. I, I mean, I can't draw on a piece of paper, much less an Etch-A-Sketch. The kind of things I used to draw look like that. I mean, on a really, really good day, it might look like that. But that's about all I could do with an Etch-A-Sketch. Let me show you what an artist can do with an Etch-A-Sketch. Isn't that amazing? And you see, when I think of what Christianity is really meant to be, it's that. God came not just to give me a second and a third and a fourth or a thousand chances. Because if it's left up to me, I'm going to keep messing up over and over and over again. You know what God's word says? He says, I've come to make you a brand new creature. A brand new person. I've come to make you an artist. I've come to make you something that you aren't apart from me. That is the message of the gospel. That's transformation. That's what we're all longing for. Romans 8, 11 says it this way. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. What that scripture means is that you are not alone. You are not left to yourself. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you and can transform your life. But there's something else we're all going to need as well. We all need the church. Now, let me very, very quickly dispel something that may cause you to react when I say that. By church, I'm not talking about an institution. I'm not talking about an organization, and I'm sure not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people of God. We need each other in this journey. And I say that fully aware that for some of you, some of your greatest pain has come from people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Some of your greatest pain has actually come from the church. And you're saying now, pastor, you're telling me now that I need something that's been a source of pain in my life. Can I just say to you, because there's somebody here this morning needs to hear this. First of all, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry if that's happened. And I, I just need to say, I'm going to say it straight out. There are hypocrites. There are those who claim to be something that they're not. There are those who know all the right words. They, they, they know how to talk the talk, and they may even go to church on Sunday. But they have not yet experienced the transforming power of the gospel. But can I tell you where, where most of us are? Most of us are not hypocrites. We're still in process. You see, that whole process of transforming us from brokenness to wholeness takes time. And sometimes in the process, our brokenness still comes out. Amen? I mean, let, let's own that. We have to own that. That there are times when my brokenness still comes out and it can bring pain to myself or it can bring pain to you. 
Let me just say it this way. The church was never meant to be a substitute for God. We, we read that last Sunday. The church was never meant to be a substitute for God. Uh, we can't ask the church to be something. It can, you can't ask another person to be something they can't be. Let me tell you what the church is really about. What it really means to be the people of God is we begin to learn how to forgive each other. We begin to learn how to love each other in our brokenness. And we begin to learn that because the Holy Spirit lives in me and the Holy Spirit lives in you, we can lock arms together and we can journey on in this journey to wholeness. We can walk on in this journey to wholeness. And in that fellowship with each other and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the work of transformation continues. Beloved, I want you to know that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you can be set free from the guilt of your past, from the fear of the future, but you are also meant to live life fully in Him and in fellowship with the people of God. Paul says it so profoundly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a what? A new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And that's why 2,000 years later, we're still shouting the words, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? He is risen. Now, we're going to take a moment. Uh, the worship team's going to come, and we're going to, we're going to sing a song of response. And, and during this time, I, I want to encourage you, please. I know we've all, we've all got places to go after church on Sunday. But will you take just a moment before you rush out these doors? Would you take just a moment to quiet your heart, to pray? To ask yourself the question, do I truly believe? Have I begun to experience that transforming power in my life? If you have, then would you take a minute to say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. But can I also tell you that if you're here this morning and when you ask that question, you know the truth of the answer is not yet. I've not yet started that journey. I don't yet see any evidence of transformation. There are going to be people down front. I want to ask our pastors and prayer team, go ahead and make your way down now. And I would just encourage you, if you want to pray with someone today for salvation, or if you want to pray with someone for any reason, if you need to be healed, if you need someone to just stand with you in prayer for God's provision of grace, these that are standing here are ready to pray with you. If you just want to come and drive a stake in the ground and say, Lord, today... I need your transforming power. You can just come and kneel at these altars by yourself. That's okay. But if you want someone to pray with you, come to them. I'm going to ask us to stand right now where we are. Let's begin to sing in response. Begin to pray however you need to do that. If you need to sit back down in a moment, that's okay. But let's stand so that people who need to move can get out. And let me encourage you right now. If you need to move, then come forward. Come forward. There are those who are here ready to pray with you. Let's sing it together. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed.
creatures are being born right now because of the resurrection power of your son. I thank you that broken lives are being put back together. 
Lord, that you are coming and intervening, stepping in where the enemy has brought great destruction. Lord, we thank you that you're teaching us how to be the people of God, how to love each other in our brokenness. Lord, I pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit. Lord, let your spirit drive out our fears and our insecurities. Let your spirit drive out our doubts. Let your spirit drive out our judgment, our prejudice. Show us how to love like Jesus loved. Show us how to live like Jesus lived. Let his spirit, his resurrected spirit, reign in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray it all together. Amen.